This is Politics Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. In recent years, Boris Johnson has been a political powerhouse in the United Kingdom. His popularity drove the conservative Tory party to record-breaking election wins in 2019, an 80-seat majority in the House of Commons. Last Thursday, Johnson stepped down as the leader of the Conservative Party after dozens of members of his government resigned. Royfield Brown is a good friend of politics and media 101. If you listen to our first season, you may remember his thoughtful questions from the audience Q&A part of those episodes. Our co-founder, John Gunnison, is also very knowledgeable about UK politics. He and Justin spoke with Royfield from the UK about last week's developments, how Boris Johnson's fortunes changed and why, what public sentiments led to this, and what's likely to happen next. For more information and past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. I'm going to start off with a question for Royfield because you just lived it. So across the pond here in the United States, with all of the Boris Johnson news for about a week, it's been pretty good coverage. I, I wouldn't say wall to wall, but as close as you're going to get for anything political in the UK. And it's been on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. When the original dominoes started to fall recently, um, can you just describe what the media coverage was like, what the atmosphere was like in the UK, and then how that built into sufficient pressure to make Boris Johnson resign? Set the table for us, if you will. First, what you've got to understand is that Boris Johnson is like no other politician in Britain. For some 20 years before he became prime minister, he's cultivated a media image. He was the editor of the Spectator magazine. He wrote for The Independent. But more importantly than that, in the eyes of the the average Brit, he was on a thing called Have I Got News For You. He's been an ever-present media presence on our TV screens who people liked even though he was a posh boy right this is a country which is still riven by by class divisions but his affability he managed to transcend class divisions considering he speaks like an old etonian which is exactly what he is so you've got to understand that yes he's a politician but he's a bit more than a politician and when he became prime minister, it was a culmination of some 20 plus years worth of work, of which one of the building blocks to him becoming prime minister was him being the mayor of London. And he had a relatively successful two terms as as the mayor of London, which showed him to be a social liberal and actually a moderate in terms of his conservative politics. London is a very progressive in terms of American politics, progressive liberal town. It votes Labour. It votes left of centre. So for him to come out in the Brexit referendum as a Brexiteer was a shock because, you know, if if ever there was one bit of the country which didn't want Brexit, it was London. Uh, London is the financial capital of Europe, or at least I think it still is by the skin of its teeth. And what London needed was was open borders to be able to maintain its place above Frankfurt and let's say Paris as, as a financial centre. So for him to come out and, and say that he was pro-Brexit was a real shock. This all plays into the fact that, as I said a few times now, he transcends British politics in a way that no other politician does. He got Brexit done when he came in in 2019. 
But there's been a slew of scandals and all the reasons why Boris Johnson became prime minister, his affability, his chumability, those things were then seen not to be things which you needed to govern the country properly. He's not seen as serious. He's got no attention to detail. He doesn't understand policy. He surrounded himself with a a rogues list of uh, cabinet members. Some of them are good, but a lot of them aren't. Nadine Doris is is a total joke. And I think most British people tell you she's not, she doesn't have the intellectual cojones to do the job. Priti Patel in the Home Office. And also ethically, what we've always known about Boris Johnson is that if he sails very close to the wind. Before he became a prime minister, there were numerous gaffes and scandals, but he's always been able to smile and duck his way out of them. And I think this has played a large part into why there have been so many scandals. But then when the last domino fell with a pincher one, he didn't read the temperature of the room. The British public for at least, I'm going to say nine months, is unfavorability ratings have been incredibly high. This summer, it was the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, and he was booed going into St. Paul's. Now, you've got to understand, you have the great and the good going into this church service to celebrate 70 years of the Queen on the throne. And all of those people there are diehard monarchists. They're, dare I say, they're what we call the Blue Rinse Brigade. These are old ladies, middle-aged women who come in from the shires to see the royal family and wave the Union Jack. You don't boo anybody at something like that. He was booed. And the, the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, he turned up and had a polite round of applause. So that should have been Boris Johnson having a little bit of a reality check. But he continued to not course correct. And then there were two by-elections or special elections, I think you'd call them in America, of which were two safe Tory seats or constituency districts, as you'd you'd call them over there. And the Tory party lost both of them, one to the Labour Party, one to to the Lib Dems. These were shocking defeats. And the scale of them, the the swing to to the two parties was massive. One of them was more understandable, the Labour, the the, the, the seat which Labour won. But this didn't prompt any course corrections. And then there's another scandal again. It's uh, this deputy chief whip. And again, Boris Johnson has just not been able to get out in front of the story. What he did do was, yes, what he always does is, is to lie and to say he didn't know the allegations against Pincher when he absolutely did, and then told other people then to go out and lie on his behalf. So it's a long-winded roundabout way of saying, because this man is an atypical politician in more ways than one, this has been wall-to-wall coverage. The Today programme, which is the flagship political programme on BBC Radio 4, it goes from six till nine, they extended their coverage, Everybody's extended the news coverage, not only because this has been an implosion of a premiership, but also because how it happened is unprecedented. It's not unusual for prime ministers to lose the confidence of their parliamentary party. Margaret Thatcher did. Technically, she didn't. 
still had a majority of them, but a majority was small. Ian Duncan Smith lost the confidence of the Conservative Party whilst in opposition. If that's not that unusual, his behaviour for the next 48 hours was the thing which shocked everybody. For him not to realise when two of the most capable members of your cabinet go, that that is a time for you to show the dignity of the office and say that, okay, I need to go. And never in the history of the United Kingdom have 60 members resigned in two days and that person still remain in office. I think that you've given a pretty good overview of how we got to where we are. Uh, there's a few points that I'd like to add, maybe a couple of contradictions or certainly additions to the the grand scope that you've offered. So looking back on Boris Johnson's career and all the steps along the way that you mentioned, you know, writing for tabloid newspapers, being educated at these elite institutions, being the mayor of London, and then spearheading the Vote Leave campaign. I think something that's worth really pointing out that I think was a, a real key step along the way to building the public persona that he had was that he was the mayor of London during the 2012 London Olympics. And this, I think, is what really made Boris into someone that was not only ubiquitous inside of Britain and the British media and politics, but also internationally. It created the opportunity for Boris to attach himself in the symbolism of the nation. And just like you said, Royfield, Boris's whole career has been about theatrics and about symbolism rather than about substance and policy. And that's possibly why it was so surprising that he became the figurehead for Vote Leave, because no one really knew where he stood on a lot of the key issues, or at least he seemed very malleable on them. But he had the opportunity at that time to really build this persona as the man of the nation, the, the, the man of the flag at that London Olympics. And it's interesting that like so many things in Boris Johnson's career, it wasn't his own work that led to that Olympics. The The Olympics bid was uh, carried out under a previous mayor. Ken Livingstone. Yeah, Ken Livingstone, who's controversial for his own reasons. But uh, Boris so happened to be in office when the Olympics were being held. And it was luck or coincidence that gave him the opportunity to attach himself to that moment of na national symbolism. Another thing that I want to point out from your narrative there is the idea that Boris got Brexit done. And I think that this is both true and false. And I think that the truth and falseness of it are both relevant to the political trajectory of Boris Johnson's premiership. So promising the public in the 2019 general election that he could get Brexit done because he had an oven ready Brexit deal was so appealing to voters. Absolutely. Because at that time, voters were so sick of hearing about Brexit all the time. And the most attractive thing to them was to believe that Brexit would finally be over and we wouldn't have to hear about it ever again. And this, I think, was the key to Boris Johnson, the Conservative Party, winning the historic majority that they did in 2019. Absolutely. However, it was a false promise because Brexit will never, ever, ever be done. <laughs> because the relationship between the United Kingdom and the European single market will never be resolved. It's inevitably the most important trade and diplomatic relationship that the United Kingdom will have just as a matter of basic geography, but also economically, because the European single market is going to be the base export market for the UK. It's a global economic hegemon, frankly. And Britain are only, uh, what, 15 miles off of the uh, coast, or and even if you look at the Irish border, um, even closer than that. And that's the reason why 
geopolitically and economically, Brexit makes no obvious sense. The relationship with the European single market is always going to be relevant. It's always going to be a policy matter because the UK will have to keep on deciding whether they want to diverge from any new regulations that are introduced by the commission. So this means that the relationship with Europe is always going to be a matter of policy discussion. And the British public did not understand this when they accepted the campaign arguments in the 2019 uh, general election that Brexit would be done and there was an oven-ready deal. And the fact that Brexit has remained relevant has been a matter of disappointment, and that's been a factor in Boris's popularity decline. Clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. Prime Minister has lost uh, the confidence of a very large part of his uh, parliamentary party. There's been seven more resignations. This is a night of resignations. And the big question this morning on everyone's lips, can Boris Johnson survive? We've had now 27 resignations. Mm -hmm. This is extremely fast moving. Gone too far, he has to go. Because he's a buffoon. He's an idiot and you can't trust him. Leave. Go. Just go. Just hearing from a very high-level government source telling me that it's done. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the brakes. For any listeners in the United States, it's very important to understand the other aspects of what we're describing as components of Boris Johnson's fall from favor have a bit of a cultural component to them. So the reason that breaking the rules and being exposed as a rule breaker and hypocrite have so much salience is partly because of these cultural factors of class consciousness in Britain. Hypocrisy is something that seems to strike a much sharper nerve over there than it does over here in the United States. And the sense that the elite class follow different rules than those that apply to everybody else is something that many people are very keenly conscious and aware of and sensitive to. And this entire experience that we've had in the last several months and year, where Boris Johnson and his government have been exposed as people who do not follow the COVID and other rules that they've put in place for everyone else. This has been so salient and so relevant because of these cultural factors. The fact of the matter is that Boris Johnson and many members of his government are not only colleagues in the Tory party upper echelons as adults, but are in fact people who have been friends and classmates since their teenage years. It's a rather small club of very elite people who were educated at the same places, who worked in the same offices as young adults, who are members of the same social clubs during university and who followed their way up the chain of the Tory party hierarchy all in tandem. And certainly the idea that the country is being run by, as we in America would perceive them, a small group of fraternity brothers is something that becomes very relevant when you notice how they seem to believe so strongly that the rules that apply to the little people don't apply to them. And this class factor is something that is so present and sharp among the British social consciousness that it is not quite to the same extent in the United States. And you see the reaction to the rule breaking play out very differently. 
It's also interesting to note the contrast between Boris Johnson and the leader of the opposition in this regard. Not that Keir Starmer is not an elite person himself, but that he is a man of scruples, as Rothfield put it. Keir Starmer was formerly the director of public prosecutions, the head of the Crown Prosecution Service, and has a reputation and persona as someone who is keenly aware and keen to enforce the rules. He, during the prime minister questions, has been able to prosecute a case against Boris Johnson's rule breaking in a way that draws quite a contrast between the way that they approach the rules and the law. And something else that's rather extraordinary is that when a story appeared that Keir Starmer might himself have broken COVID protocols, he offered to resign as the leader of the Labour Party if he was found to be guilty of violating the rules, thus holding himself to a very, very different standard and a very clearly apparent different standard than the one that Boris Johnson had applied to himself. And it was a bit of a gamble because by making this promise, Keir Starmer set himself up in a very vulnerable position. If he was indeed found guilty, he would have had to put his money or his mouth is, as they say, and go ahead and resign. So he took a risk, one that staked his entire career on the outcomes of this investigation. And he was indeed vindicated just this morning, I believe. So there was a benefit to following the rules in his case. He's able to set such a uh, clear difference between himself and the leaders of the conservative party. And like I said, because of these factors of class consciousness and sensitivity to hypocrisy, it's one that I think is very salient for the voters in the British public. So that did make news in the United States, Keir Starmer saying that he would resign if he broke the rules. Can you get into what he was accused of doing and then how he was vindicated? Because I think we've seen three or four accusations against Boris Johnson or more maybe, and he wasn't vindicated. So he went up to, I believe it was Durham uh, in the northeast of, of the country. And it was on, on the campaign trail. He was with some, some politicos. I can't even remember exactly who they were, but he's accused of having a beer or two with them. And I wasn't in the country at the time, but I think the, the protocol was you couldn't have a meeting more than three people unless you were a part of the same family. And he is kind of adamant that he did stick to the protocols. The whole Partygate scandal started because the, da- the Daily Mirror, who's the, one of the two left-leaning newspapers in the UK, got a tip that there were these parties going on in, in, in Downing Street. And then there was a slow drip, 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 that it wasn't one party, it was numerous parties, etc., this was, in effect, opposition research. This was the Daily Mail that then found out that he had had beers with, with some people up in Durham, but he didn't break protocol. So this was, this was kind of, you know, investigative journalists trying to find dirt on Starmer because Starmer and the Labour Party were making political hay out of uh, Boris Johnson's ills. But yeah, it was fundamentally, he had some beers, but whatever the rules were at the time, and they were constantly moving, to be fair, right? After the first lockdown for three months, then he eased up, but he stuck to the rules is the thing. So the case of Boris Johnson is quite an interesting one, because if you look at the reason for his rise to the top of the Conservative Party, it's really based on one factor and one factor only. And that's the sense that he was a popular person who could win elections. This was at the key to his entire political career, the basis for making him the prime minister of the country, 
the leader of the Conservative Party being thus the prime minister of the country. No one in the Conservative Party really ever had very much faith that Boris Johnson was the best person to manage the government or that he had really any of the skills that were relevant to doing so. Also, there's not really much belief or recognition that Boris Johnson has got a very detailed set of policy agenda. As we were saying earlier, it was never even clear until the campaigning started where Boris Johnson stood on the big question of Europe, the big question of the day. Also, the agenda that he's put out for Brexit opportunities has been rather disappointing, rather thin, and often very light on detail. He promised a leveling up of the north of England, and that that would be an opportunity that would come to Brexit to reshape the economy to make the north of England as wealthy as the south, or at least close that wealth gap. I know you're still doing your framing, John, but I just want to say one thing. I actually think that potentially is going to be his biggest and best legacy of his premiership. It's the recognition that economically the country's lopsided, that London disproportionately accounts for so much of the country's economic output, and, and we need to rebalance that. I just want to say that. I think that potentially could be the best thing to come out of Boris Johnson. It's quite an argument that recognizing that there's a wealth gap between the North and South is enough to set your legacy on because it's so widely recognized. I think the important thing would be to actually take steps towards closing the wealth gap. And that's something that he hasn't really been able to do or really put forward any serious ideas to do. The sample size is small of these particular examples where someone's forced from office in the middle of the parliamentary term. The norm is, in fact, to stay on until the next leader uh, is chosen. That said, the very fact that after he's resigned, people are still questioning uh, whether he can be trusted. What's the process now? Who may try to succeed him? What do we know? So it's a two-stage process. We get the precise schedule of it on Monday, but the first week or two, we'll see the 358 Conservative MPs narrow down the initial list to a final two. The initial list will probably start at around 10 people. The next stage is about six weeks as those final two tour the country before 200,000 Conservative Party members make the final choice. It's not a national vote. It's not a general election. The winner of that by default becomes Prime Minister as the leader of the biggest party in Parliament. It's a very, very open race at this stage because it's not one based on principle. When Theresa May left, the Conservative Party wanted a harder Brexit. That was a clear choice. Boris Johnson, we don't have that same policy aspect to this leadership race. She left because of him. Now he left because of him. I heard one say today. For our U.S. listeners, we pick our next leaders based on election. And then I guess the only analogy we could make is the leader of a party in Congress or the Senate, the House or the Senate. And that is voted on by members of the House or the Senate. And, and they go through this whole leadership process. So before we pick the, the next leaders, can one of you walk me through how the heck are they going to pick the next leaders? I know it's not a general election, but what's going to determine who the next prime minister is? And then what's the backroom dealings look like? And then we can get into maybe some names. So it's not a presidential system as you know, it's a parliamentary one. So it's the parties or the party members, uh, the parliamentary party or the members of that uh, of that party, which can be outside of the parliament, who actually vote on the leader, whether it's the, the Labour Party or the Conservatives. They all have their own rules of going about it. But 
it's kind of weighted so that MPs, people in parliament have, have a certain vote, then the members have a certain vote. And depending on what party, they have slightly different rules. People, when they go to vote in a general election, are not voting on the leader. They're voting for their MP and they're voting for a party. It just so happens that the party who has the majority, then their leader then becomes a prime minister. It's as simple as that. So what we actually have here is a situation whereby the Tories who are in power, and I keep on saying Tories and Conservatives, it's the same thing, just the Tories is the nickname for the Conservatives, that they are having a leadership election whilst they are in power. Nobody in Britain who's not a, a Conservative Party member is going to be able to vote on it, but they're in power and it's an internal vote of the Conservative Parliamentary Party and then the members. The top two will then run off and the Conservative Party members will then vote on that top two. So let's talk about who some of those candidates might be and who we're expecting could end up becoming the next Tory party leader and thus the prime minister. I mean, some of the names that are floating around are Rishi Sunak, who is the chancellor of the Exchequer until a couple of days ago. That's Similar to the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, but it's considered the number two position in government, like a finance minister in Germany or so on. There's also Savid, uh, Sajid Javid, who was the health secretary. He was also formerly the chancellor of the Exchequer. Both of them are a part of the South Asian diaspora, which is a very large and politically significant community in the United Kingdom. And there's the chance for the Tory party to make history by having the first Asian Prime Minister of the UK by choosing one of those two gentlemen. Um, there's also Ben Wallace, who is the Defense Secretary. He's someone who's received a lot of compliments and credit for the way that Britain have conducted their policy during the Ukraine war. There's Liz Truss, who's the Foreign Secretary. She's another one who is believed by many people to have her eyes on number 10 Downing Street. There's plenty more, Royfield, who I haven't mentioned. Who, who do you have your eye on? I'll be honest with you. It's Rishi Sunak. He has literally come out of nowhere in the last three years. Before 2019, nobody knew anything about Rishi Sunak. He was uh, promoted into the government off the back of a previous scandal and then when Savage Javid then stepped down. But he's proven to be the most popular politician in the country, in large part because he's literally the opposite to Boris. He's physically in shape. He wears well-cut suits, but also, I mean, he's not at all flashy. He's not one for the soundbite. He's seen as a little bit of a technocrat, but with just about enough charisma that people kind of remember him. But in the depths of COVID, uh, Rishi's Dishes, which was a scheme whereby restaurants would give it, uh, could sell meals at half price and the government would pay the other half, it was seen as a way of propping up the restaurant industry, that was wildly popular. It contributed to a second wave of COVID, but it was wildly popular. And also the furlough scheme is definitely being seen as somebody who the average Brit in the street thinks favorably of, and also thinks he tried to help us through COVID. So I think Rishi Sunak is is the person to beat. But one thing I, I, I did say before we started the recording of this is that the Conservative Party has a history of quite often not anointing the heir. We can go back, John Major wasn't the heir apparent, that was Michael Hesitine back in uh, 1990, Ian Duncan Smith wasn't, Theresa May most definitely wasn't back in 2016. 
you have a very small sample pool of the original voters on this, which are MPs. And quite simply, it's who do you dislike the least? And then through the runoff system, alliances form, change and reform, and people can come fr- can come from nowhere and end up being in the top two. I think Sunak would be a, a great choice. I don't particularly li- like his politics, but if I was a betting man, I would say Rishi Sunak. Personally, uh, I think Jeremy Hunt would be a great choice. He's a moderate. He's somebody who could actually talk to One Nation Tories. These are conservatives who do believe in some level of government intervention, which then it could build coalitions actually rhetorically with people left of centre while still remaining a a conservative. But I think Jeremy Hunt's days are are, are probably, um, you know, uh, toast in terms of uh, top line leadership. There is Penny Mordaunt and there is Liz Truss. She really does want the post. She was at the G20 conference in Indonesia and she cut short her stay there to come back to campaign. Yeah, Liz Truss certainly reminds me a bit of Boris Johnson and that it seems like her only interest in having the position is just to be prime minister and not to really do anything in the job. Like Kevin McCarthy here in the United States. Yes, Boris was quite similar to Kevin McCarthy in that way. And I, I sense a bit of that with Liz Truss. And I think it's a plague among many people in the top ranks of the Tory party. Royfield, let's think about this then. So the process of selecting a new Tory party leader is an interesting thing because it makes a difference in a couple ways. We're talking now about how there's two components to this process, the parliamentary party, but then also the Tory party members who are about, it's not very many people. It's not like a presidential primary in the US. So if all those members who are scattered across the country who aren't well-known people, but are dues-paying, card-carrying members of the Tory party, if they have the opportunity to weigh in on this leadership election, the process is going to take longer. So Boris Johnson would probably be in office all the way till October. And also, you have got a different pool of people weighing in. There's been some talk about changing the rules so that it won't take quite so long that they wouldn't necessarily include the full membership vote. I'm wondering if you think that that's something that could actually happen. And number two, if you think that there is, in fact, a real gap between what the parliamentary party want and who they would choose and what the general membership of the Tory party, those people scattered across the country, who they would choose. Oh, absolutely. There's a difference. And the rules were changed back in the early 2000s for for that reason. I can't remember exactly what they were, but they were changed before Ian Duncan Smith became the leader. But they put too much power in the hands of, of members of conservative members throughout the country. And Ian Duncan Smith lasted, I think, 18 months to two years. He was seen as somebody who didn't have the gravitas and didn't have the skills to to command the conservatives with that in, in actually in, in parliament. So if you look at Conservative Home, which is the main conservative blog, they're all about Ben Wallace. You ask the average Brit in the street, who's Ben Wallace? If three out of 10 people told you, A, he's an MP, and B, he's uh, the Defence Secretary, I'd be surprised. But he's wildly popular with grassroots Conservative members. Somebody like a Rishi Sunak or a Savage Javid have much more broader name appeal. And what MPs, Conservative MPs, see as being important 
and what conservative members see as being important are, are two wild, wildly different things. So the rules have been changed in the last 20 years because of this. So now it's a case of a runoff between the MPs who have more than 15% of the party who can at least propose them, and then they keep running off until there's only two left, then it goes out to the membership. And in that way, at least the, the parliamentary party has some control over who are the last two candidates. So there can't be a wild card like Ian Duncan Smith. You said that if it was the people in Westminster choosing the next Tory party leader, they might choose Ben Wallace. If it's up to those Tory party members across the country, who do you think they would choose? Who's their favorite? That's what I'm saying. They would choose Ben Wallace. They would choose Ben Wallace. He's really popular on conservative home, on those conservative blogs. Rishi Sunak actually isn't. They have this really evocative phrase when Tories go out campaigning, they call it the rubber chicken route or or something or another. And because they're going out and they're going to these constituency parties all around the country, having these little private hustings and, and eating chicken chicken dinners. And that's what Rishi Sunak has to do and Savage Javid and Liz Trust. And you'll find that somebody like Ben Wallace has actually built up those links beforehand. So he, he's kind of beloved of grassroots conservatives. I don't know why I'm not a, I'm not a conservative in the grassroots, but conservative home has him as by far the most popular person who's potentially going to run with conservative members. Well, it seems like it might be useful for the Tory party to choose someone like Ben Wallace, someone who's seen as a safe pair of hands, someone who's received plaudits for his actual substantive handling of the big issues of the day, which is not something that can be said for many of the other candidates. It seems to me that whoever is put in the leadership position right now is going to almost immediately become a bit of a lame duck because the Tory party are scheduled to go into general election in January 2025 at the very latest, and they're holding an 80-seat majority that is almost certain to at least substantially contract. Even if they could scrape out another majority, it will be a much weaker one than the one that they elected in 2019 with Boris Johnson as the party leader. The next Tory leader is really being set up to fail. They're coming in at a time when the Conservative Party have some of their lowest recorded popularity on record. The the cycles of British politics suggest that it will soon be time for the opposition to lead. The next person coming into office as a prime minister and the leader of the Conservative Party is really almost being set up to fail, aren't they, Royfield? I agree. And I think I said this at the start. We have inflation at record levels, which we haven't seen in 30 years. We have a war in, in the in Eastern Europe. We have, if we're not actually in recession, it's definitely a technical recession that we're in. And to your point that you made earlier on, we still need to negotiate our position with the EU and we need to sort out the issue with Northern Ireland. It it's literally is a poison chalice. But if you are an ambitious MP, this is your chance to grab power and to say, look, I am competent. I'm not like the last guy who was, bu was a bumbling buffoon. I actually do have the requisite skills to get things done. I agree that it's a poison chalice. But if I was a Tory MP and I, and I had my eye on, on the great prize, 
I'd go for it now because you could make a strong argument to say it's such a poison chalice that even if you just do a decent job, you've done a better job than than the guy, which has got us where we are beforehand. But they're almost be- just going to become a caretaker, though. Right? That's the word that comes to mind, isn't it? A caretaker PM, someone who's a safe pair of hands to lead them to a loss in two years in the next general election. Nobody can predict two years out in the future, though. I would I would assume you can't do it in the United States. We can't even predict it's now three months, four months out for the November elections here in the midterms. But I guess just to follow up on this, just so I can get a better understanding of what's going on in the United States, when you're campaigning for president, even Congress, even Senate, what you do is you have this backroom campaigning where you're meeting with donors and you're setting up support, soft support that turns into hard support for money. And then you go out on the campaign trail, whether it be a media tour, events with crowds, going into diners, Or like Royfield said with the chicken dinners, we were having these small dinners with influential people. Because there's going to be two aspects to this type of campaigning for the next prime ministership position, Royfield or John, what does this campaigning look like? It's not in diners. There is money in British politics, but nothing compared to US politics. So it's not like people have to go out and get massive donors. I think it was Michael Portillo when he ran to be the the leader of the Conservative Party. He went and got a donor so they could have a, a, a whole load of phones in, installed in a room. It's not a photo op thing. This is you going out to the members of your political party and in effect doing, doing hustings. But as, as John says, it's a very small membership divided up into 650 odd different constituencies. So you're going out and talking to 100 people at a time, 200 people, and shaking their hands. But it's not in the glare of the media at all in the way that American elections are done. You're not walking into the, into the local chip shop or into the local pub and uh, saying, I, you know, I want to be the next leader of the Conservative Party or the next leader of the Labour Party. British politics doesn't work like that. This is behind, behind closed doors and with members. Of course, there's the odd photo op, but it's nothing like American politics in terms of scale or flashiness or glitziness. Well, I think that we can say this, though. It's almost by proxy a measurement of public sentiment, right? Because you're not appealing directly to the mass. However, like I said, when we're talking about Boris Johnson, something that the Tory party membership will have in mind when they're selecting the next candidate is that measurement of how the general public are going to respond to this person. So they are going to be assessing these candidates based on their understanding of those candidates' appeal to the broader public. This was the rationale behind choosing Boris Johnson in the first place, right? So it's definitely a factor. It is a factor, but there's something else which we haven't mentioned here. Frequently, when the Tories go in for this process, it never gets to the members actually voting. And today, John Major, ex-Prime Minister in, in the 90s, has said we need to not only change these rules, but we need to get this done really quickly because we don't want Boris... It's not good for the Conservative Party or the country to have Boris Johnson in office but not in power. There are many Conservative MPs that actually what they want to happen is that there's a runoff 
And then in the last two, let's say if there's a wild disparity between the, the parliamentary votes between the top two, that what's happened before in the past, the second person just drops out and says, look, you, you are crowned as the leader. Because potentially what, what could happen is that this is another round of bloodletting for the Conservative Party. And this has happened frequently in the past, that somebody just drops out and says, look, you're way ahead, it's fine, it's all over, right? So the Parliamentary Party can have the last word. That concludes today's conversation. Again, huge thanks to Royfield Brown for joining us. He's the producer of Mid-Atlantic and other great podcasts. For more information and past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode. This has been Politics and Media 101. Wherever you are in the world, thank you for being a part of this community. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of our co-founders, Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, we hope to hear from you soon. 